0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: When King Leontes accuses his pregnant wife of adultery, the nobleman Antigonus assumes that Leontes has been abused by some putter-on. In other words, some Iago-like villain has been putting malevolent ideas into his head. In fact, Leontes is the father of his own misconceptions, just as he is the father of his wife's children. But unlike his children, his ideas might be said to have no mother. They lack corroboration, which is to say collaboration, with a source outside himself. How then do we account for the seemingly spontaneous generation of his thoughts? How can false apprehensions arise out of nothing? And what price must one pay for bearing these misconceptions, these nothings, into the world? In this episode, the first part of a multi-part discussion, we'll be talking about one of Shakespeare's last plays, The Winter's Tale. This is Aaron Olanek.
0: This is Wes Alwyn.
1: And you're listening to Subtext. Okay, Wes, so The Winter's Tale is Shakespeare's, possibly his second-to-last play, is that right?
0: Or third-to-last? I was looking at a chronology, so it's after Cymbeline supposedly... And before the tempest, Henry the Eighth and two noble kinsmen. So, okay, sixteen ten or sixteen eleven? Is that right?
1: Oh yes. Okay. Right. So, but really, his second to last great play, I'd argue, right? His hmm. an ultimate great play. Sure. So it's classified as a romance, and this question of genre is one that's a bit interesting, especially because this play is playing so consciously with uh, generic crossover with taking two, two genres and putting them together, something we'll probably talk about later when we get to Acts 4 and 5 when the play mm. becomes something quite different. But in romance, we have a mixture, I think, of comedy and tragedy, of comic and tragic registers the question of what genre this actually is or whether or not it's useful to call something a romance is an interesting one, but in general they seem to be characterized by a loose episodic structure. There are elements of fantasy or improbability or even the supernatural that run through romance. Those listeners who are familiar with our episode on uh, the Tempest will remember that there's explicit invocation of the gods and supernatural creatures, right? Like Ariel that are running around. Caliban has some elements of the supernatural in him. And there's this sort of halfway between the comic and tragic that occurs. So tragedy, which is never quite fully tragic and With a a sort of generous smattering of comic relief, even within the tragedy, which we can argue, I suppose, in these first three acts, if there are comic moments, I think there are quite a few of them. So there are things that are irrevocable, time passes, people do die. But then the comedy also works itself out of the ingredients that are already in place within the tragedy. So the action is transposed in this particular play from one generation to the next. And The movement from tragedy to comedy, I think, has a lot to do with this uh, displacement by way of the generation. So there's a regeneration into comedy, just as there's a regeneration with these younger people now coming of age and becoming interested in marriage and starting their own lives, their own history together. So There's that's something about, I suppose, about romance in general, but also this play in particular and the way that it blends these episodes, as I said, of fantasy, of the supernatural, also of both comedy and tragedy wedded together or interspersed with each other.
0: Yeah, I really like the way you put that when you say transposition of the action into the next generation. So it starts out on the trajectory of the tragic And maybe there's some tragic element like the death of Mamelius or the Tempest. It looks like it's going to be it looks like Prospero is going to be getting merely getting revenge. But then we get in the end a comedy in which some young people are, I want to say, cobbled together in a relationship. (laughs) You get the redemption in the union of the younger generation, which undoes a rift in the older generation. And I hadn't thought about it in in the, in terms of the phrase that the way you had put it exactly this transmission the, into the next generation.
1: Well, there's something too, I think about, uh, and this is another element of romance that, which I should have mentioned earlier, which is this travel element right uh, the tempest has this as well even though most of the mm. most of the action is just located in one place there's this idea of this huge map over which these events are taking place so there's huge spaces traversed it's very peripatetic right we have sicilia and bohemia having a sea coast so there's something fantastical inherent in that kind of imaginary space but this transposition i think between one generation to the next is repeated in this idea of these two spaces that you're that we're toggling back and forth between, which represent they'll represent a change in the genre of the play when we go from Sicilia, which is sort of dour and extremely regal and courtly and regimented, and we go to Bohemia, which is a place occupied by shepherds and clowns and and all of these fun people and it's much more pastoral and it has these fantastical elements to it in a way that Cecilia doesn't and so this kind of transposition into a different environment a different frame of mind I think is also repeated in this generational this regeneration right in which we have a relationship which has failed the relationship between Leontes and Hermione literally renewing itself In this new place Mm -hmm. with this next group of young people.
0: Yeah, it has a desert. It has a seacoast. Has bears. Which Ben Johnson really criticized him for that. And of course, yes, the Pursued by Bear famous criticism. What is the bear for? I read that it may have been just that they happen to have a bear available and available. Mm -hmm. And so. Shakespeare put that in the play. And I thought it really misses the point to criticize something like that, because this is really first and foremost about entertainment. It's sublime entertainment. But if you have a bear, you're going to use the bear. (laughs) I mean, that's the governing principle of of the art at that point. But he's taking these fantastic elements from Robert Greene's Pandosto. So although he reverses, is that how you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, Pandosto.
0: Pandosto. Robert Greene, by the way, the guy who had accused Shakespeare of plagiarism, apparently said, referred to Shakespeare as that upstart crow beautified in our feathers, which is taken, it doesn't mention Shakespeare by name, but it's taken to be a, a reference to Shakespeare. And here, Shakespeare is essentially adapting a story by Robert Greene. So including Bohemia, which is basically part of the Czech Republic had, doesn't have a desert obviously is not doesn't have a coast, and yet in this fantasy it it does, and not only that, it looks like the English countryside <laughs> really <laughs> is what the this second setting for the play seems to be.
1: I take the bear more than anything to be a pun, maybe I'm being a little silly in that way, but right, but there's so much emphasis in these first three acts on obviously on the pregnancy of Hermione and on people having these misconceptions or these conceptions, people bearing ideas. Um, Mm. Antigonus, when he's overtaken by the bear, it seems to be this personification almost, or that's not the right word for an animal, but I can't think of the proper word, but that this is the last gasp of this violent idea that's taken root in Leonti's mind and which has killed, arguably killed at least two people and then finally Antigonus in the in this last moment, mm. which is then very quickly transposed into a comedic moment, right? But um Antigonus I, is yeah. is the the last person, it seems, who's who believes Leonte's story. One of the mm-hmm. one of the things maybe that marks Antigonus for death is the fact that he does believe it still, right? Camillo gets away in order to avoid killing off Polixenes, but Antigonus leaves with the baby on this evil errand he, that he's agreed to do for Leontes before he can hear from the oracle that it's all bunk, that Leontes' mm-hmm. suspicions of Hermione are garbage, and and so in in doing this this evil deed of, of Leaving Perdita to die by exposure, he he's just following orders, of course, right? But he gets he gets his comeuppance in the form of a bear, uh, a kind of a born idea that swallows him up. Maybe I'm
0: a what idea?
1: A born idea, an idea born out that he's carried this idea, um, mm. at, personified by by Perdita across the oceans that that seem to separate Sicily and Bohemia, and and then when she's deposited born again into this new place. He's then eaten by the bear, the last vestiges of this idea.
0: That's great. In a way it, again, I hadn't thought of it this way. I mean, I certainly appreciated the comedy of the moment (laughs) and I I think it's already comical him running out with a bear running after him even before the son of the shepherd, the clown uh, cracks some funny, (laughs) makes some funny remarks about it. But You're making me think of this as this is an an interesting segue from the tragic to the comic. It's almost a decomposition of the tragic. Here's a terrible, violent act that actually is played for laughs. So I like that. I like that a lot. Shall we start into act one?
1: Yeah, let's rewind and see how we get to Bohemian in the first place.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I, I... in a in a way, this play is about obviously about jealousy, and there's a great psychology, I think, to the first act and to the transition the quick transition in the mind of Leontes uh, into the mental state of jealousy, although that that itself has also been criticized, but I think it's done expertly and and part of the what I think is so expert about it is that the play. Uh, actually grounds itself in a reflection of of, about the concept of gratitude Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and hospitality and i thought surely other people have thought about this right they had the secondary literature doesn't just focus on jealousy and of course i did a quick search i didn't read anything but yeah there's a million papers written on hospitality and gratitude and in the winner's tale but I think there's also an interesting relation between, there's an interesting transition from the question of hospitality to jealousy. But in any case, the play begins with a scene between Camillo and Archidamus in which there's this worry over whether the hospitality of the Sicilians can actually be returned when Leontes visits Bohemia. So Archidamus suggests that instead of living up to that challenge, right? Because it, it, it can't be lived up to. The, the hospitality that they've received in Sicily is so great that there's no recompense for that. So instead, he says, we will give you sleepy drinks that your senses, unintelligent of our insufficiency, may, though they cannot praise us, as little accuse us. And then the the, the first scene sets up some other stuff, including the the idea that Polixenes and Leontes have this unalterable affection between them, and that Mamilius is a quote unquote gentleman of great promise that everyone wants to see become a man. So but I was taken by this early emphasis on the concept of hospitality, um, which also is the is how things play out in the beginning of the of the second scene. I don't know what you made of that.
1: Yeah, the, this first scene, I love the fact that we're talking about this because it's something that might easily be skipped over, and yet I think it's, it has all the themes of the play in it in microcosm. So mm. we have all these things that you're describing, this question of hospitality. In fact, I was joking with, I was joking with someone the other day that you could take Leonti's jealousy or his insanity as... Just evidence of the fact that this is a play about guests that have stayed too long. They've been there for <laughs> they've exactly. been there for nine months, and people start to go crazy, and that's the way it goes. That's what happens, um, yeah. Right, but we have especially
0: when you're leaving right at the nine-month mark, it's very suspicious.
1: Well, there's a lot of correlation equals causation here. I mean, oh yeah, we, we can immediately see. I'm that. not
0: so sure they didn't actually get together. <laughs> <laughs> no
1: way, really, based
0: on the way it's portrayed.
1: Yeah, well, get it's prepared. pretty. So. Yeah, their language is pretty. Polixenes and Hermione are speaking almost mm-hmm. exclusively in sexual met- metaphors with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. But but prior to that, yeah, so we have Archidemus as, as representative of Bohemia and Camillo as representative of Sicilia. So we already have this kind of metonymic function happening here, in which these two men are each representing their two kingdoms as parts of the aristocracy, I believe, and as proxies for their kings. And then they refer to their kings as Bohemia and Sicilia, a further Mm -hmm. metonymic um, function, metonymic kind of distancing or replacement of these men with their countries. And yet we learn that Bohemia hasn't really been in Bohemia for quite a while, right? And then we understand that this is a friendship, which though it's extremely close has been carried out by proxy, by gifts and letters and other things which have this kind of replacement function that metonymy has. So there's something up here, right? There's I see this as prefiguring something as late as Hermione's statue, or uh, which I know I'm really getting ahead of myself here, or the fact that... Spoiler uh, alert. Spoiler Sorry. alert. Or Florizel replacing... Mammilius. We also have this idea that Mammilius isn't going to exist very soon after this scene, yeah. already within this scene. Archidamus is already projecting what would happen if the king had no son at the end of this scene. The sleepy drinks we know are going to come up later. This is potentially where Camillo gets the idea in the subsequent scene to to poison Polixenes. It's lent to him by Archidamus in this scene. It's also, I mean, Leontes isn't here to listen to this, but this idea of these sleepy drinks, which is such an odd thing that it really does stick in our minds. So it, it stands out. We remember it when we get to Leontes talking about the drink poisoned by the spider in his mm-hmm. famous speech. And then wh- what else could I say about this? Oh God, the, the best thing of all, the affection which cannot choose but branch now this doubling this duplicity within the language not a conscious duplicity on Camillo's part but when he talks about the affection that Leontes and Polixenes have for each other there's this great word branch they had here's
0: they were the, trained together in trained, their childhoods and they're rooted betwixt them then such an affection which cannot choose but branch now
1: yeah so we have so this. the
0: metaphor is um that it will flourish. It will come into actuality, right? Because they've mm-hmm. been having interchanges through gifts and letters, but the double meaning there is that the branching will represent the, an extension of the affection, say to the, to Leontes, to, to Hermione, right from Leontes mm-hmm. to Hermione, or that there'll be a split that there will actually be a rift.
1: Exactly, and this flowering idea too within within branching or or this flourishing f- flowering. It's glossed in my notes as in my edition rather as flourish as as in yours. Yeah. So this this idea of the thing that that flowers, you know, that produces heirs and children, etc., is also splitting at the same time. In order to have a, a child, you, you split yourself, and there, mm. of course, there's also this idea of the horns the cuckold's horns inherent, I think, in the branching imagery too. So, you know, in the language here, the language is so tortured, I think, in this whole play. It's very difficult. It's much more thorny, I think, than most other Shakespeare plays. And this scene is no exception to that. And I think that just this idea of branching as having this, uh, this oxymoronic meaning is something that'll be played upon really heavily in the subsequent scene and in the rantings and ravings of Leontes.
0: Yeah. It's worth emphasizing your point about the syntax of the play. This is the way Shakespeare wrote in later life in The Tempest and Symboline, for instance, are very similar. Very difficult to understand. It does loosen up a little bit as the play goes on. But in the first act, definitely, uh, this very tortured syntax. It's amazing how different Shakespeare can be from from play to play because it's it's Mm -hmm. quite unlike earlier plays and it is poetically very beautiful in my opinion but it takes some deciphering there's almost like a riddle-like or puzzle-like aspect to it Mm -hmm. it forces you to run over the if you're a reader to to go over it again and puzzle it out and It's clear when you see it performed, obviously because of, because of context, but, but still it really requires a lot of mental capacity of the audience, I think, or it requires some mental, some mental exertion, but yeah, I think this is, you're right. This first scene really does set up everything thematically. I had the same reaction as you. And when it, when I first read this, I, and this is the second time I've read the play, I, it was the kind of thing you gloss over. Okay, here's some introductory exposition, right? Mm-hmm. No, much more is going on there. It's a thematic introduction as as well, and some an ingenious parts. So, including this this idea of wanting Mamilius to be wanting to see him born, and then the joke. So they they went on they that went on crutches ere he was born. Desire yet their life to see him a man, and then Archidamus says. Would they else be content to die? Camilo, yes, if there were no other excuse why they should desire to live. Archidamus, if the king had no son, they would desire to live on crutches till he had one. He, so maybe foreshadowing, I thought maybe you pointed to this as a foreshadowing of the loss of Mimilius and the, and also foreshadowing his replacement by, by Florizel.
1: Definitely. There's even something in this that reminds me now of the wording of the oracle, right? This idea that she's not going to recover what's been lost until he gets his daughter back. This is a sort of twisting of that or a parody of that. Like this is, you know, oh, if the king were to have lost a son, then they would want to keep living until he got one back. (laughs) You know, there's a a similarity to that oracular speech. Mm Just as this scene, I think, mirrors that—is their name Cleomenes? Cleomenes and Dion are another two, another pair of men who have a similar expository role uh, mm-hmm. in, in a couple of in the, bear, scenes the bears, after this. of the of the oracle. Right, right, and and so it would make sense that this scene would mirror that one. Another scene, which we think is something that you you can pass over, but which has some interesting resonances and and sets up some themes which are. Really important, So it would make sense that the oracular language that those two Cleomenes and Dion are bearing in that scene um, would be prefigured (laughs) by by this one. Um, Mm -hmm. But let's get into I mean, right, right from the start, as soon as in act one, scene two, when all the major players come in, and Polixenes starts talking, he just becomes Yeah, I think it's worth reading that, that (laughs)
0: first speech, if you want to read it.
1: Sure. This is Polixenes right at act one, scene two, line one. Nine changes of the watery star hath been the shepherd's note since we have left our throne without a burden. Time as long again would be filled up, my brother, with our thanks, and yet we should for perpetuity go hence in debt. And therefore, like a cipher, yet standing in rich place, I multiply with one we thank you many thousands more that go before it.
0: So. Okay, so this is wonderful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome.
0: (laughs) Wonderful speech. And you know you know among the the deciphering I had to do was looking up the word "cipher" and trying to figure out what what does this mean. And it sounds like from my to my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, what he's saying with this cipher speech is that a cipher is like a zero being added to a number to multiply it, right? So ten becomes a hundred becomes a thousand. The ciphers are the zeros. This is an idea that comes up in Shakespeare a a few times. He likes this idea of a nothing that is creating a something or multiplying a something. And in this case, it's used to highlight the fact that there's this interesting asymmetry between hospitality and gratitude where hospitality is a it's a it's concrete, it's physical, right? You're providing people with food and shelter, sustenance. And what is gratitude in return? How are you repaying that debt? You repay it to some extent with your company, you repay it to some extent with your gratitude, but these are ineffable things and they are in general mental or social phenomena. It's not like giving someone food. And so that is the asymmetry with which Polixenes begins the play, saying that though standing in rich place, which I think, so you can read that in two ways. He's standing in this place in which he's received all this hospitality, but also the zero, the cipher and its place in the number, um, in some sense is standing in a rich place. but all he can do is keep multiplying these thank yous, like adding zeros onto a number and it's meaningless. It will never amount to a repayment of the debt of hospitality. Am I reading that right?
1: I think so. I think that's great. I I hadn't considered this. I I love this distinction you're drawing between the the physicalness of hospitality and the, the ineffability of gratitude. I love it. Um, so, so, what does that mean about this debt between them? how How is this then how do we square this? then? Is this really a debt that is lingering in the mind of Leontes? Is Leontes actually quite, as I think your argument here is suggesting to me, Leontes is then feeling this debt rather keenly <laughs> and, then, and feels he's been taken advantage of maybe in more ways than one. Is that where you think this doubt of uh, this doubt I- is is originating in the debt? of Polixenes,
0: i think maybe at some unconscious level that's true and you pointed to the fact that guests can overstay their welcome and if someone hasn't overstayed their welcome at nine months (laughs) then i don't know (laughs) they must be an extra special guest i realize this is olden times and they've traveled very far and (laughs) time works differently back then but still I think we will see clues in Leontes kind of obtuse reactions to what Polixenes is saying. I think he's, he's not quite tuned in to the emotional reality of what's unfolding at this point. And I think he may be irritable about the overstaying of the guest or maybe, but, but probably not Mm -hmm. consciously, but the, there are other subtle things that I think happen to, stimulate the jealousy as well. And some of it is the, um, we can go over that as we keep talking. I think it's worth pointing out each thing. And and a lot of it does have to do with the behavior of Polixenes and Hermione, but in this case, something is off, I think. And, um, that's what Polixenes is pointing to. He's pointing to a very general truth too. It's not just that gratitude is ineffable in response to hospitality that it, it, but in general mental states and social phenomena can't pay off concrete physical reality adequately in ways that they are meant to and then that goes even for various types of social phenomena and we'll get more into this as we go along but honor for instance can't repay love even though it's often meant to. And, th- and in fact, this is a case of honor, you know, gratitude, giving gratitude in a way is like honoring and recognizing and respecting something, re- respecting someone for something they've done. But giving people food and shelter is more, uh, is better described as love, I think. And honor can't actually repay love. But I think you're right. You're pointing to the fact that I th- or I think you are, that there's already something off here, and Polixenes' speech reveals that. He's sensitive to that. He's reacting to something that we haven't seen on camera, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> happened off camera. Something's already happened that, that has put things off, and this speech sets things in motion, let's put it that way. It's a, small, it's a very small thing, but this reflection by Polixenes sets everything in motion in motion towards Leonte's insanity. Even though it's just him trying to do, it, in a way it looks like a nicety, right? It looks like politeness, it looks like just people doing the usual thing, but there's a darker undercurrent. Let's pause to talk about our sponsors of this episode, St. John's College. St. John's College is for students who seek meaning in their lives and who want to ask hard questions of themselves and the world. At St. John's, students explore 3,000 years of human thought, confronting fundamental human questions while engaging with history's most influential works of philosophy, literature, math, science, music, political history, and more. At St. John's, our vibrant community of learners examine works as divergent as Aristotle and Aquinas, Einstein and Nietzsche, Bach and Baldwin. Together, students learn to question their own perspectives while listening to a multiplicity of others, opening up a world of possibility, thought, and a truly diverse and respectful community. At St. John's, students are also supported toward academic and life success with summer preparation programs, Pell Grant matches, merit scholarships, generous student aid, paid internships, career supports, and a faculty-student ratio of 7 to 1. Graduates pursue careers in law, education, media, public policy, science, and more. Learn more about their undergraduate and graduate Great Books programs in Santa Fe, New Mexico and Annapolis, Maryland at sjc.edu slash subtext. That's sjc.edu slash subtext.
1: Well, I really I really like what you say about Le- Leontes not being quite tuned in. It's, I know you took it in a slightly different direction, but I'll borrow that phrase and say, that it seems that he's hearing things almost out of their own context, that he's then interpreting for his own ends. Right. So, so Polixenes is arguably putting these ideas in his in in Leonti's head by using the language that mm. he uses. But Polixenes is pointing out that he's been there for nine months, and standing next to Leonti's nine months pregnant wife. So. <laughs> so, so, it's so Leontes suspicious, is, <laughs> right, right, and so I can't so repay
0: your debt, but I, I did leave you a child,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> well, d- well, so Le- Leontes is not hearing that. Oh, Polixenes is saying, oh, I've overstayed my welcome. I've blah 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 I mean, maybe he is hearing that, but he's hearing like, oh, nine nine months he's been here, and then he's hearing that that Polixenes is a cipher. I mean, maybe this is a suggestive to him that yeah that he's you know since Leontes is making signs out of things that are not signs, that he's making a code out of things that aren't coded. And here, Polixenes is saying he's a cipher, right, to be figured out. Leontes is reading this as, oh, he's he has a secret, he's doing something wrong. And then he, Polixenes himself puts this idea of cuckoldry into, into Leontes' head in the same way that maybe Archidamus in the previous scene puts the idea of the sleepy drink into the head of Camillo. You know, things are, contagion is something that's so often used as a metaphor here. There's lots of sticky ideas and Polixenes is concerned that he's left his throne without a burden, uh, another image of of pregnancy. And he says that he's he fears what may chance or breed upon his absence, which is of course itself an, an image of cuckoldry. Something bred in one's absence can't be Fathered by you, if you're not there to father it, so so, so it's like Leontes is, as you're suggesting, I think is he's hearing the words, um, and these are just giving him lots of ideas out of nothing. He's multiplying them in, in like a cipher into um that which Polixenes surely doesn't mm-hmm. mean, but which is so suggestive in isolation,
0: yeah, and in a way. Polixenes takes up that theme of the mental versus the concrete. So he I think he mm-hmm. takes up um he he keeps extending the, the sorry the theme in his next speech. So Leontes the thing that I was thinking of as obtuse, Leontes just says after that long speech by Polixenes, "Stay your thanks a while and pay them when you part." Which is an odd thing to say to someone who has just said I'm accruing this enormous debt by staying, and they it can't be repaid. Mm. And thanks aren't good enough. Thanks will never repay them. Leontes breezes over that. Later on, Hermione will accuse him of being too cold in Mm. his entreaties. He's not doing a good job of actually trying to persuade Polixenes to stay. And I think she's right. He's not actually trying to get him to stay, but. Um, until he <laughs> calls Hermione tongue-tied. But in Polixenes' speech, um, I guess I'll read the whole thing. Sir, that's tomorrow. I am questioned by my fears of what may chance or breed upon our absence that may blow no sneaking winds at home to make us say this is put forth too truly. Besides, I have stayed to tire your royalty. It took me a while to figure out that that the that and the that may blow refers back to fears. So he's doing a number of things here. He's giving us a number of things that worry him. So there's what may happen in his kingdom in his absence. And then there's this idea that his fears may actually cause things, bad things to happen at home. Mm. So Hmm. the fears that may blow no sleeping, so cold winds at home and make us say this was put forth too truly meaning I hope that by having the thought it doesn't make it come true.
1: Oh. So
0: you get a little bit of the omnipotence of thought there, a worry about the mind actually having this effect on reality. So in the first speech we get the idea that mental states can't ever compensate concrete reality. And in the second speech we get the idea that what if they do what if they do have an effect? Um so it's a little bit of superstition or what psychoanalysts would call omnipotence of thought. And then and then there's the idea that he's just tiring Polixenes out. He's being a burden. He's being trouble. So those are the three elements that, that he's using to excuse himself.
1: I love that. I thought that last line, though, was his admission of guilt. He's saying, I've stayed to tire out your wife. So... Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no man i'm I'm tired
0: of having sex with your wife (laughs) this this has just been nine months of
1: this (laughs) um yeah this this magical thing i am
0: not your boy toy sorry
1: (laughs) i have feelings um (laughs) (laughs) i know i'm
0: hot i know i go around without a shirt on most of the time and i have a six-pack but
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's too funny um no, but I, yeah, this this idea that you're pointing to of, of magical thinking, I did not read that properly. I didn't realize that's what he was implying. And of course, that's the most interesting part of this whole thing to me. And this idea that that in this economy, this gratitude economy, of course, grace is a form of magical thinking, arguably as well, right? Um, the, mm. the, the note of grace that will be sounded by Hermione shortly, I think also figures into this, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the the two of them go on. A, a little bit after this about about tongues and speech uh, to the point that, that, that you pointed to where Hermione accuses Leontes of being too cold in his entreaties, but we have from Polixenes, there is no tongue that moves, none in the world, so soon as yours could win me. Of course, silence... Silence is always maybe a little scary, and I mean, certainly the the concept of silence can be a little bit scary in a play. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we need words to fill up the the space, the time, but also, of course, we know that silence is confusing, and it can be as much of a cipher as anything that's explicitly said. And we know from Cordelia, right, that silence can be taken the wrong way; it can be dangerous in in Shakespeare's mind. So. There's this idea of speech, of needing speech to move someone, to convince someone. And I, I'm just immediately put in mind of Lear and of Cordelia needing to convince someone to stay. And then mm. Hermione's silence, both as both as a sign maybe of a Cordelia-like virtue, but also of being something dangerous that can be interpreted any way that you want to interpret it. So there's the demand for speech to... Yeah. to produce something from within yourself that is itself nothing right that's just air yeah
0: um yeah i think that's right the nothing is always a stand in for consciousness or mental states or what's interior to the person or what goes in it what is distinguished from concrete physical reality or however you want to put it and so thanks belong in that thanks and gratitude belong in that realm, but you're pointing to something I think that is very important, which is that it seems like Leontes has already become suspicious now at this point when he mm. asks his wife if she's if she's tongue-tied. So Polixenes has already set this up by saying there's no tongue that moves, none in the world, that basically could win him. And obviously Leontes is riffing off of that unknowingly, in the way we do in speech. And this is what I think is part of what's so psychologically wonderful about this first Mm -hmm. act is having that little remark and the use of a word like tongue, which is quite suggestive sexually. Mm -hmm. And Leontes cottoning onto that and somehow joining that to the idea of his wife's silence, which as you point out can be taken as Something suspicious, but how is he going to try and get rid of his suspicion? He's going to invite her to try to get this guy to stay. There's a lot of different dynamics here. Not only is he doing that, he's challenging her to, he's setting up a competition between them, right? Well, I couldn't get him to stay, so maybe you can. And there's a few different ways in which that can go really wrong. He could Get upset because she turns out to be a much more persuasive and better spoken person than him and much more tuned in to the emotional reality. And so that's A. And then the next thing is if she does win Polixenes over, this is Leontes' childhood friend, someone he's supposed to be very close to. And there's almost even a kind of a homoerotic suggestions there. And so he could end up being jealous of, if she does get Polixenes to say, stay, he could be jealous of of that, right? He could be jealous mm-hmm. in the other direction, or he could interpret it, her ability to persuade Polixenes to stay as evidence of an affair, which is what happens. But probably all three of those things are happening. He feels aggrieved that he feels rejected by Polixenes in favor of Hermione and rejected by her in favor of Polixenes. And then also just shown up for, um, his lack of rhetorical skill. It's remarkable that the very sharp distinction between the way, the way Hermione and Paulina are able to speak so persuasively and the way in which Leontes, he doesn't, really wax poetic except when he's insane. (laughs) So in any case, yeah,
1: Hermione even has to supply. She even has to supply his speech. They have this whole, what's strange about what Hermione says here is it's a kind of imaginary conversation or she's sort of speaking for him, quoting, quoting him in advance of himself. Um, She's, she says to Leontes, you sir, charge him too coldly. Tell him you are sure mm-hmm. all in Bohemia as well. Uh, say this to him. He's beat from his best ward. You know, she's instructing him. And then she has this whole kind of hypothetical conversation carried out again by proxy, where she says to tell he longs to see his son were strong, but let him say so then and let him go, but let him swear so and he shall not stay. You know, so she has this whole imaginary conversation between the two men which she carries out. So it's as if she's, yeah, well, as if she is harboring their relationship within her. <laughs> her, her pregnancy of speech here is almost like the love child of Polixenes and Leontes, for which she is the surrogate. She's having this imaginary exchange between them in which she also says lots of interesting things about about.
0: Yeah, it. let's go over, yeah. like, the... She, she has <laughs> some really interesting... How is it she persuades polixenes to stay it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating the way she does it she -hmm. starts out by teasing leontes that he's not being passionate enough right charge you charge him too coldly and then she says to polixenes well you're not you're not being honest about why you're not leaving it's really it if anything it's because you miss your son it's not because you're worried something bad's going to happen you just miss your son it's not fear, it's love. And if that's true, then you, I'm going to make you say it. If you say it, if you admit to that love, then we'll force you to leave. We'll thwack you out of here, however she says it. And there's a little bit, it seems to me of maybe a bit of a challenge to his masculinity or something like that. But then she moves into, um, she bargains with him This is like the different stages of grief i guess right (laughs) and she moves into the bargaining stage where she says okay well if you just stay an extra month or stay a little little longer i will let leontes stay it's almost like a mom and these are like overnights right pajama Mm -hmm. parties when leontes goes to visit you i'll let him stay an extra month and and then she has this afterthought which is another point where i think uh, Leontes' suspicion is aroused, and we can talk about that. She has an afterthought. Oh, I doesn't mean I don't love you, Leontes, as much as a lady should love her lord. <laughs> Didn't mean to diss you with that remark. It's not like I want you to be away so I can, so, Mama can drink wine at home, <laughs> <and
1: do whatever. laughs> get with the pool boy. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And then, and then she gets into a this flirtatious yes and no battle. Actually, we don't. I have. Two more points that she makes, but I don't want to just keep speaking if you want to jump in here. I think there are two more elements to her persuasion, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Sure, in this Verily section, because I have something yes, to say. Yes, the just
0: Verily, so. the back, and so, yeah, the, go ahead with the Verily section. Yep.
1: Yeah, the, 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 prior to that, she fill, what I really like about to tell he longs to see his son more strong is that she fills the vacancy of the throne with his son. Right, so she puts the mm. son in there. The breeds in my absence becomes no. You missed your son. It's, He's there in your absence. Ha! Right. Um, <laughs> mm. uh, the sons are yeah, a problem. I think. Great. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And yes. Uh, and and then when we have we will thwack him hence with distaffs. This is another thing I was really interested in. This word distaff. So this is a t- t- stick used for spinning wool. This is like a. This is an association with female artistry classical association obviously Mm. going back to ancient greece and so Mm. there is something aggressive about this in a way it's like a female phallus there's something aggressive Mm. about this desire to send him back to his own family his own concerns which which i think is related to a desire to send him back also to his wife, to his own. She's saying, "Let's break up this frat party, <laughs> you know. Go home <laughs> to to your own to your own throne and your own problems." I think that maybe what's been going on here, th- this is my hint, is that whatever has soured is like a frat party that's gone on for too long, while he's had access to Hermione in the meantime. Polixenes has had access, so there's a tension which is going to come out in a bit. And this kind of prefigures that, and I don't want to skip ahead of you between this idea of fraternal love and the, and yeah. love of a woman. Right. And so I think that she's, I think that's in play here, but I won't go there yet. So let's look at this verily thing. She she's teasing him for using this word verily again. She's like, as I love what you've suggested, that there's this word associative nature of speech here. She's doing that explicitly. Right. He says the word verily and she calls him a verily and says, you put me off with limber vows, which Mm. limber here means feeble. But to put off a limb reminds me of this branching idea, right, (laughs) Um, uh, Mm. that he's branching away from her in speech. He's kind of um, trying to outmaneuver her or get away from the position in which she's trapped him. Anyway, you keep going. You wanted to say something about this.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's, first of all, it's a very flirtatious kind of little battle that they have where she says, you'll stay, no, Madame, nay, but you will. I may not, verily. So yes, you will stay. No, I won't. Yes, I, yes you will. No, I won't. But, mm-hmm. and then, so the verily is like, a she calls it a limber vow. Later on, she calls it an oath. And the essence of this part of the argument is to say that oaths can always be countered by an equal and opposite oath. You can say, (laughs) no, I really have to go. And the other person can say, no, I really need you to stay, verily. So um, this, again, points – yeah, exactly. Mm. This, again, points to what I put in my notes is the impotence of mental states, like the impotence of um, niceties like thanks, right, the impotence of an oath to really do anything. It's not actual physical necessity. It doesn't, right? So if someone, if, if a door is locked and I can't get out, I can't get through it, that's physical necessity. Verily, I really can't get out. But I feel anxious, therefore I wanna go home. That's not necessity. That's not, that's, you could call it psychological necessity, maybe, except that we could always make a different choice so Mm -hmm. she's pointing to the fact that what he's representing as this ultimate sort of necessity in fact is not and that can be revealed by simply proffering an equals an opposite oath and she even says that a lady's oath is just as potent as a lord's Mm -hmm. uses that word potent but what she's really saying is just as impotent as a lord's they're meaningless just like, thanks. They're nothings and reality is something else. And then she continues that, that dive into reality and actual physical necessity by talking about imprisonment. If he were imprisoned, then yes, that's a verily that's what verily really amounts to verily you won't be able to leave. And, and, in doing so, she trans she gets puts this she creates this great juxtaposition between being a guest, the one who owes thanks, and being a prisoner, the one who has to pay fees when they leave. I guess they made prisoners in England, right, pay for their stay. Mm-hmm. So thanks get transformed into something a bit more concrete, which is to say money. And and in doing that, she I, I, I think this is the masterful thing she does. She can allay some of his anxiety by saying, this is not at least giving him the idea that your concept of necessity is flawed. You feel like you have to leave, but actual necessity would involve this imprisonment. And in a way you don't have the choice. You can leave the choice up to me. You're gonna be my prisoner or your guest choose and it's all playful of course he's not literally going to take him prisoner but it's a containing function it can alleviate anxiety by giving him the idea that it's not his impulse that he's acting on and so therefore any omnipotence of thought involving his ideas affecting going back to bohemia and affecting reality and doing something bad that is alleviated a little bit as well because it becomes her impulse that's at stake.
1: That's great. No, that's wonderful. I think too, yeah, I love this. The problem, I suppose, is that is that Leontes is overhearing this. And so this is all going to become, this all sounds, though, very suspicious. Even So she's allaying his yes. concerns and she's, right, yeah. so she's doing all these things that you're describing. But also, so just as in this previous chunk of, of speech that we've gotten from her, she's having a proxy conversation between Leontes and Pol- Polixenes. Here, with this Verily speech, she moves into this quoting of a conversation between herself and Polixenes. So now it's the two of them. So so rather than brokering something you know, the the reason for her speech was that she's supposed to be the proxy of Leontes. She's trying to mm-hmm. work to get Polixenes to stay on Leontes' behalf. Now she's speaking for herself, but she's again having this imaginary conversation between the two of them. So you put me off, should you yet say, sir, no going, verily you shall not go. A lady's verily is as potent potent as a lord's. So she's now, she's put herself into this conversation with these quoted sections. So now she's, this speech is, as you point out, that it provides this this kind of containment for Polixenes. It's also providing a kind of containment for their Interchange their intercourse, <laughs> and she even puts a, a prisoner in there. This idea of keeping him as a prisoner, which of course we know will come up later with this, the the baby is is the prisoner in the womb, and then Polixenes mm-hmm. says to be your prisoner should import offending, so. So we have this idea inserted into the middle of this quoted speech, the speech in which Hermione is imagining a conversation with Polixenes and she's speaking for him, putting words in his mouth. So this conversation between them, which happens inside of her, uh, a baby is inserted into this imaginary interchange and, or, or a prisoner, I'm sorry, which is, which we know later will become a baby. And then this idea of, Uh, the prisoner as being someone who committed an offense by staying too long, by being somewhere this idea that, Oh, if I'm here as a prisoner, then I've done something wrong by staying too long. So, so, so this, I'm not putting this very well, right. But like, like the, the idea of an adulterous baby is in the center of Mm. what Hermione is saying. She, Mm. she goes 90% of the way there. And Polixenes provides the last 10% by saying that this, this idea of being a prisoner should import offending. And what have mm. I done to offend? Yeah,
0: very interesting. Yeah, which is for me less easy to commit than you to punish. Yeah.
1: So she doesn't want to be very his good. jailer yeah. then, but her, but his kind hostess. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm not forcing you to have sex with me, but you know I'll, I'll treat you well. No. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's great. I didn't think of the this parallel between the prisoner and the child imprisoned in the womb, but I think that's right. So let's leave off there for part one, part two. I think we will just get through act one and then get through the rest of the acts and and subsequent parts. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other airway shows like Good Job Brain, a podcast that's part quiz show and part offbeat trivia, and Big Picture Science, which engages the public with modern science research through smart and humorous storytelling. That's airwavemedia.com.